Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans, chapter 12, Pastor Murphy showed us that biblical change is so difficult because our minds are being conformed to a worldly mindset. Today we'll begin to see the process of biblical change. All right, turn with me please to the book of Romans chapter 12. We're dealing with the subject of change and uh, we're working our way through this particular chapter, especially uh, verse number two. And I'd like just to read that verse again and then we will commence uh, our sermon uh, on this subject. In verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we come to thee as your children seeking your counsel and your help in this grave subject that we're dealing with. We all crave change that is significant and substantial. We all are aware that we are changing daily. And I ask you, uh, as your people, uh, to show us how we can facilitate that change in the direction of your will. Some have been trying to change certain habits, uh, certain behaviors that people find either repulsive or difficult to deal with. And no doubt they have tried, and they've tried, and they've tried. The problem is that the change has not occurred as they desired. And so in some measure, they may have some residual doubt as to the effectiveness of the method and the means that you stipulate in your word. But help us rather than to blame your word to look more carefully at ourselves and our approach to change. What we do and the methods that we employ. And I pray that as we work ourselves through this verse of scripture that by the time we are com have completed our study of this text that we would have gotten a far more firmer biblical grasp on how to bring about change that is transformative and more in line with your purpose and your will glorify your son elevate your word and hide us behind the cross as we attempt to preach your word to your people. Whatever fruit would result, we know that one will sow, another will water, but help us to understand that all fruit redound to you because you're the one that produced fruit in people's lives. And therefore, help us not to praise man when we see results. Help us to praise you who works in men's hearts and uses your word to transform and change 
people. We look to you now. We ask for your help. We seek your pardon and forgiveness so that nothing hinders the free course of your word. And we open our minds to your counsel as we look into scripture. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I am increasingly coming to the conclusion the more I dig into this verse and read commentaries and read books and look at um, grammar and lexicons on this um, passage, I am increasingly convinced that there's no greater teaching on the subject of change than this brief verse we find in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. In short, what Paul gives us in this verse is what we might call the theology of change. It's from a biblical perspective. If you want to use modern jargon, and you were talking about it from a scientific point of view, it would probably be called the psychology of change, is what Paul has in this passage. It is reported today that there are over 200 forms of psychotherapy and that every one of these forms of psychotherapy are competing in the marketplace to deal with human behavior. All forms of psychology is about how do you change human behavior. And there are now 200 different forms of how to deal with this subject. All of these have the simple goal of understanding why people do what they do and how to change what they do so that they exhibit what we might call acceptable behavior. But none of these are able to deal fully with the subject because they all reject what I call the biblical teaching on human anthropology. And what I mean by that, the biblical doctrine of man. You cannot solve a problem if you do not know what the problem is. And that's the problem with all these forms of psychotherapy. They're trying to solve the problem of human behavior, but yet they have completely rejected the biblical teaching about the doctrine of man. Because of this, they are guilty of two critical errors in dealing with human behavior. The first error is this. Rejecting the biblical teaching on man, they have a false view of human nature. I repeat, they have a false view of human nature. They claim that man is an advanced evolutionary animal and that he's not some kind of a special, unique creation. Therefore, all my experiments with animals can now be transferred to man. Because an animal acts this way, This is how man acts. So they transfer their theories because you can't experiment on man. It's it's unethical to do that. It's immoral to do that. So the only thing they can do now is to turn to the animals and start experimenting with animals. And when they find that by doing certain things, the animal responds a certain way, they now transfer that scientific technology to humankind. And here's the problem. They see man as an advanced animal. That's what he is. So when you have that thinking, I could almost say to you, you're going to be wrong in the application of your theories. And that's why psychology doesn't work. 
Now, if psychology worked, wouldn't we have a better world today? I was going to Google before I came here, but I didn't get a chance. How many psychologists there are in the world? It's stunning. And you would think that with so many psychologists out there, you wouldn't have any problems. Their friends wouldn't have any problems. Nobody would have any problems. But the problem is this, is that secular psychology does not have any answer to man's problem because it ignores the biblical teaching about man. Now, does that make sense? Now, I'm not against the study of psychology in the sense that you go into the classroom and listen to what these idiots teach and compete with them and tell them that's wrong. But that's not what people do. See? They sit there and absorb everything he says because he has a PhD or an MSc or whatever it is. They believe it is true. See? And that's the problem. We take carte blanche, what we're told in college, and then we transfer that into the church or into some Christian setting because the experts said. Well, what if the experts are wrong? And I think it's the same thing we're experiencing now with the covid because everything they told us when we began is now, they're now changing the whole thing. Changing the whole story of this. So I'm saying to you, because they have rejected this biblical doctrine of man and believe that man is just an advanced animal, this is the other error that they made. They believe that when man is born, he's no born with a blank sheet. He's born innocent. He doesn't have a sinful nature. He's not born going astray from the time he's, he's, he, he comes out of the mother's womb. He's born with a blank sheet. And what happens to that blank sheet is what society does to him. So, so society turns him into a murderer. Society turns him into a crook. Society makes him steal. That's the common belief today. And by the way, I just saw this statistic where a woman... It's called a career criminal. She's been, to, she's been, to, uh, she's been arrested 192 times. Look what is happening in America. They get into crime. You don't have to bail it. They release them again. And what they're saying, people do end up killing people, injuring people. I don't know where that society is going, but it certainly is a society in decline. And unless something reverses, it is really going to the... All societies eventually decline, we know that. And America is on the way down. And uh, I don't know how they're going to stop it. I, don't, I think the only thing that changes that is revival. I don't see any other way it's going to be transformed. Changing one president to the other doesn't solve the problem. So there has to be some kind of revival. So I'm saying to you, this is why we've got 200 different forms of psychotherapy. And none of them seem... To work. Here's the second error of going away from the biblical doctrine about man, what is called biblical anthropology. It is this. They also do not understand what I call the dynamics behind human behavior. I repeat, the dynamics. And what I mean by the dynamics behind human behavior, I mean the forces that drive man to do what he does. They don't understand what those forces are. So they come up with their own ideas, like the id and the ego and the super ego. See? Uh, or they come up with the idea of the unconscious. See? Or some kind of um, uh, primal trauma that you had when you and your mommy's 
Paul the you don't even remember anything. I can't even tell you when I was one year old what I did. I can't even tell you when I was two years old what I did. Or three years old when I, I might, when I get into six and seven, I can remember some things. But other than that, I can't tell you a thing. So the stupidity of that argument is so obvious. When you look at it and weigh your own self, you realize that this cannot be true. So when it comes to the dynamics of what produces human behavior, they either blame the environment or the unconscious or childhood trauma or the Oedipus complex. You've probably heard that one. Oedipus complex. That's why the boy is jealous of his daddy. Because when he's so young, he's so attached to his mother. He has a sexual uh, uh, attachment to his mother. I don't even know that. That's Freud. Freud brought all those ideas into, into, into thinking that they become common now. See? Hogwash. And then, of course, society or history or some type of deprivation that you suffered uh, during your early age makes you who you are as a person. By contrast, when you come to Scripture, the Bible explains the dynamics behind human behavior. What makes a man do what he does? And here's where the Bible says to you that that special creature of man is a fallen creature who has inherited a sinful nature from his great, 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 great ancestor called Adam. So when he's born, he's not born with a blank sheet. He's born with a depraved nature that wants to go away wrong. Have anybody in here ever told your daughter how to, how to lie yet? Seriously, you think of every child that you have. Have anybody here told your daughter how to rebel and not uh, obey? No, Joe has a way of dealing with Ellie that when she doesn't, he licks her. And I, I, she's crying. I don't want to hear a child cry, to be honest with you. I'm very soft. Then I ask her, Ellie, why are you crying? I did not obey daddy. I said, good. I did not obey daddy. Why, why could she tell me that? Because she knows that when her parents speak to her, she should obey. But she has a little something called a will that's twisted. See? And wants to do her thing. Like every one of us. And we all know that's the way we are. See? So I'm saying to you this morning... The drives that, the dynamics within us that drive us to do what we do, push us in what I call to practice narcissistic evil. We do wrong to satisfy ourselves. We are basically, fundamentally selfish beings concerned about satisfying ourselves. Now you tell any forum of psychologists that, and you'll be laughed out of the room. See, They don't believe that. And the reason why they don't believe that is because they do not believe in biblical anthropology. Now let me sum up very quickly here. What makes you do what you do? There are five forces at work in your life that make you do what you do. Three of those are internal and two of them are external. The internal forces are what the Bible describes as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are three internal forces. And what that means, the lust of the flesh means that you do what you do to satisfy your physical needs. 
You're motivated to satisfy your physical needs. That has to do with food, sex, and perhaps shelter and clothing. See? That's why you have the problem with the problem with food, you have the problem with sex. See? Those are two powerful forces. And what that is what is called the lust of the flesh, that's a drive for you to satisfy the physical part of you. The lust of the eyes is the drive that you have to satisfy your aesthetic taste, the things that you consider to be beautiful or attractive or worth having. Your desire for the niceties and the fineries of life. See, that's why you want a, new, a, ni- a nice house, a nice car. That's why you ni- want nice clothing and nice shoes. And you want things that are attractive because you have to call an eye that has an aesthetic sense of beauty. And there's a craving for that. And the third thing is called the pride of life, which is your desire to satisfy your ambition for recognition, success, and significance. You want to be successful, you want to be recognized, and you want to be considered significant. Those are the three internal forces that drive you. And everyone here sitting here says that is truth. Because I understand in my own life, those are the driving forces. Those are the internal dynamics of your life. But what massages those dynamics internally at two external forces, which the Bible calls the prince of the power of the air, Satan, who manipulates those things in your life to produce behavior that is narcissistically evil. So you've got an external enemy who is an infernal enemy, who is a malignant being that is working against you and using those things against yourself. That's an external, it's not within, it's external, but it's being used. They, Satan moved David to do what? Number the people of Israel. It's, Satan moved him to number the people of Israel. He injected the idea in his mind. And of course, we know the penalty of that. That's the external force. But there's another one. That Paul deals with, it is called the spirit of the age. It's not a personal malignant being that Satan, but the internal force is the pool of ideas that control and regulate and drive man's way of thinking today. So you've got these things working against your internal dynamics. Now, anyone that looks at that very carefully would see that this is pure brilliance on the part of Scripture. Only God could reveal that to us. You cannot bring any other theory outside of this biblical teaching that makes sense more than what the Bible is saying on this matter. All of the others are human inventions. The creative mind of man trying to explain what he's rejected and therefore coming up with his own ideas and philosophy that of course have mesmerized the world. And that's why the world is in the current state it is in. And they can't move away from that teaching because to do that would to bring them back to biblical norms which they've already rejected. And to turn their back on that now means to say, look, we were all wrong. The Bible is right all the time. See? Which political leader or which social worker or which psychiatrist or psychologist you know that got the kind of guts to make those kind of statements? They don't have it. There's no humility. It is just a narcissistic pursuit of one's own selfish ambitions. Mm-hmm. 
I would like to point out that our Lord points in another direction when he was talking about this external being that we have that's our enemy, the external dynamic. He said, he cometh only to do three things. He comes to what? To steal, to destroy, and to what? And to kill. Now, when you have an enemy that has all his, his entire life, his whole um, modus operandus, the way that he operates, the thing that he does, his, his philosophy that guides him is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Those are the forces you have coming against you as a believer. And basically, this is what Paul deals with in this passage when he talks about not only the, the uh, prince of the power of the air, but he also talks about the spirit of the age. It's a philosophy that makes God superfluous and a philosophy that advocates that man must live life without any reference to God. And it's these virulent, poisonous forces that is targeted on man that has now created the state of the world that we find in it. Now you will notice that Paul dealt with that in the first thing when he says to the believer, because of this, he says, be not conformed to this world. One of the things you will discover when you look at Paul's teaching and Paul's writings is that invariably there is a Pauline method to how he teaches. And here it is, very, very simple. The first thing Paul does, he always deals with the negative first. He tells you what not to do. See? That's not how we start often. See? We want to tell people, do this, do this. No. You, you tell them what not to do. He tells this is wrong. The problem with the world, they don't want to hear it is wrong. Read, you do any counseling course. I lost interest in the Rockford uh, Diploma Course in Counseling because I could not believe they told me that I must, not, I must not give any people any directive counseling to tell them what to do. I must let them find the answers within themselves. Wow. So what's the purpose of counseling? No, I'm serious. As a matter of fact, I wrote the guy about that. I said, but so you're, you're, you're and this guy claims to be a Christian, by the way, but he's one of the lecturers. He's one of the, the uh, adjunct professors that you get in contact with. And I was appalled how he responded to me. Basically what he said, but this is what they teach, so you just accept what they teach, but you, you don't have to believe what they teach. So why am I doing it for? Just to say that you got a diploma? Is that what you're doing? I was totally appalled, totally disappointed. All the counseling in the Bible is directive counseling. The whole book of Proverbs is directive counseling. It's telling you what not to do and what to do. It's giving not human counsel, divine counsel. And I don't think it is possible to go wrong by giving divine counsel or biblical counsel. But they don't want you to do that. Because they don't believe that the Bible is God's word. And therefore we end up in this quandary. The second thing therefore we find that we come to this particular passage. Not only does Paul begin with a negative telling you what not to do. 
But that brings us to where we are this morning, where Paul now begins to tell us what to do. He now deals with the positive. And here's why the, the negative is always followed by a positive in Paul's teaching. Paul never saw himself as an armchair theologian, theorizing on the minutiae of, um, of, of doctrine or dogma. The apostle always saw himself as a missionary pastor evangelist who was dealing with people's everyday problems and pastoral concerns. So he's not one who sits in the ivory tower just speculating. That's not Paul. He's always formulating solutions to problems and giving practical advice. And that's where the positive counsel comes in. Don't do this. Well, Paul, what must I do? No, this is what you do. That's the Pauline method of teaching. And it should be the pattern that we ourselves follow when we're dealing with these matters. So not only did he tell you, first of all, the, the deal with the problem, and he tell you not to be conformed to the world. We dealt with that in three sermons. We now come this morning to the positive part of Paul's teaching, where he now tells you, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. I would like to state here again, I find this verse what I call the most intriguing, marvelous, and most profound simplistic teaching on change in the entire body of books I've read dealing with how people's behavior change. There's nothing to compare with this. It is simple, but yet deeply profound. And it's a simple profundity that you find in this passage that staggers me. See? And then I realize this is not Paul's wisdom. This is divine wisdom given to Paul. God is always simple, but God is also deeply profound. So when we find this combination, we know there's something here that is supernatural. And not out of the normal realm of the human mind. Remember that we said that uh, Paul builds his philosophy of change around three strands of truth. He deals with the problem of change, he deals with the process of change, and he deals with the purpose of change. We've looked at the first one, and we want to look this morning at the second one, which has to do with the process of change. One last thing before we move in this direction. Having dealt with this matter of be not conformed to the world, which is the fundamental problem that stops change, the philosophy, the ideology, the pool of ideas that seep into our lives, that we don't shut off through the ear gate and the eye gate, and therefore we try to sanitize them as they into our lives, but it never is able to work because the problem is you can't sanitize these ideas. There are too many. They're flowing in too fast. See, I, I mentioned to people, you come to church how many times a week? How many times you hear the word of God preached? Probably twice a week at the most. Every single day, 24 hours a day, you've got this thing streaming into your ears. You've got this thing streaming into your eyes. What do you think is going to win? That's like me having a, a one-inch pipe bringing in good ideas into your life and a four-inch pipe bringing all this filth into your life. What do you think is going to win? So we become overwhelmed with it. And hardly can our philosophy of biblical theology float above all this sewage. And consequently, 
we lose control of these matters and we try to change, but we discover we can't change. We're overwhelmed. And that's why Paul said, stop conforming to this world. Stop. Stop it. It's in the imperative mood. It's in the passive voice. Stop this thing happening to you. And it's in the linear tense. Don't let this continuous sewage uh, into your life so that you find yourself conforming and you're thinking and you're thinking and you're thinking and you're thinking to the world. Okay. I, however, warned you uh, last week and I gave you three, which I think were important warnings uh, along this line because I think that we, we, because we know we should not conform to the world, we may go to the other extreme. We don't want to do anything with the world now. So any new thing that come up, we find that we, you know, it's like the Amish people in America. You ever heard of the Amish people live in Pennsylvania? Do you know they don't drive cars? The only way they allow you to drive a car is if you're living so far from church, you can't get a ride, and you can't ride with tires either. You could just do it with the rims. I don't know if you know that. They would never buy a tractor. They would just use the normal plow with a horse to do that. They live very simple lifestyles. They would never use a phone. They would never use a fax machine. They wouldn't use a, uh, a cell phone. They, live very, they believe that's the world. And that's worldliness. That's an extreme position. And that's why I warn you that if you're moving away from this encroachment of the world's philosophy on your life so that you find it difficult to change, you avoid three extremes I talked about last time, but it's called obscurantism, which has to do with your distaste for anything that is new. Anything is new, you say it's not true. So anything that seems to be new, and it may be a good thing, but because it is new, you're just against it because it is new. Let's suppose we introduce some new thing here in the church. And we're going to introduce something new on Sunday nights. Take it from me. There are people sitting here who are saying, I don't want that. I don't like that. I don't like that. See? And you know why? It's not because they haven't even seen if it will work and how effective it would be, but because it was never done before. It's something new. And automatically their mind is against anything that's new or novel. They're living in the 18th century in their mind, but in reality in the 21st century. There are people like that. The other thing I'm warning you about is traditionalism. No, I didn't say against being tradition. This is good tradition. Paul says, we've passed on the traditions to you. So there's nothing wrong, but traditionalism is something completely different. Traditionalism is something that is, it's not biblical, there's no base for it. We've been doing it for a while, and when you now want to alter it, people say, but it's biblical. It's not biblical, it's just a tradition. Like take the time of a service. We start at 9 o'clock. What if we decide to move from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock? Or what if we decide to have two services? We, instead of having a night service, we have a morning service for one and then one for who will come in the night. 
There are churches in America that do that all the time. But there are people because you, you start at 9 and church must start at 7 on the evenings. Any idea of changing that, they're traditionalists. You've got to be careful. And then the other thing I is Phariseeism. And this is perhaps my mind the greatest curse among Christians. And I pointed out to you, this is exactly what the Pharisees, you know, they see our Lord came on the scene and he's doing things that has never been done before. I hear some things that was never done before. Never before has a religious man who claimed to be from God sit down with sinners and uh, publicans and converse with them and even drink with them. Never has it ever been done. But when he came to save sinners, he did that. And the Pharisees said, this man is a wine-bibber. Why? Because he's doing something that has never been socially acceptable before. Remember when he, was at the, he came to the woman at the well and he asked her for a drink of water? The woman said, how come you a Jew asking me for water? This doesn't happen. Because the Samaritans and the Jews are poles apart. They hate each other. And she is amazed. Nothing like this ever happened before. How come? A Pharisee is a person who, when somebody violates a social standard that they consider to be the norm, is now perceived as wrong and evil. Let me use an illustration. There's a group here in Antigua. I think Sister Annie was part of it that go at nights. Am I right about that? They used to go to nights. And what they would do, I forgot what they, what they call them? Street passes. Am I right that they were going to bars? Anywhere, Anywhere though. Now, how do you think that came across to Pharisees in Antigua? Huh? They could never entertain the idea that people could be so concerned for lost souls they rather be sleeping at night and hugging at their wives. They decide to put on something and go out there and sit down with the guy in the bar and say, man, we are destroying your life for. They can't accept that. They've never seen that before. Their mind is within a box. And those kind of social changes create antipathy, hatred, dislike, animosity, slander. See, against the one who dares to break the social norms. So I warned you about those four, um, those three extremes. Now that brings me then, secondly, this morning to deal with this whole matter of be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Now there are just two points in that simple clause. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Two things. Number one, we want to look at the meaning of transform. Secondly, we want to look at the means by which we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. As I told you that the appalling teaching is so simple but yet so profound. Those are the two things that we'll, we will consider here this morning for ourselves. I would like to begin by first of all suggesting to you that we must recognize that not all change 
is good. That's why Paul says, be you transformed by the renewal of your minds that you may prove what is that perfect and acceptable will of God. He's calling for a transformed mind in a certain direction. I repeat, not all change is good. Any change that is contrary to biblical norms and biblical standards is harmful. So we're not just saying that we want just people to change, but we want to change in a certain direction. Change for the sake of change is not what the Bible calls for. And that's why it is so important for us to understand that when Paul calls for this transformative change, it's transformative change in the direction of God's will. This is what he's calling for. We must reject the evolutionary Spencerian theory that all change is progressive. Because that's not true. There are some changes that don't help people. And this is why the first thing we need to draw to your attention uh, here about this whole matter. Secondly, I want to say that everyone here this morning is changing constantly and gradually. You are not the person you were last year. You are not the person you were two weeks ago or one month ago. We are gradually, constantly changing. The question that we have to ask ourselves is in what direction is this change occurring? Are you a better person than you were a month ago or three months ago or a year ago? So not all change is good. Secondly, not all, all, all we, we, we're all constantly changing gradually and constantly. Thirdly, frequently people do not handle change well. This is why Paul has to put us in the direction of change. When people begin to deal with change, their attitudes, their fear, their suspicions create what I call passive resistance or sometimes open opposition to change. By the way, do you know you don't have to stand up and say, I disagree with that? You can passively resist it by not voting. I don't know if you realize that. So when you see people not vote, the vast majority of the time they simply mean, they don't want to say that, they don't want to see that people know that they're not for it, but they prefer not to do anything. You call that passive resistance. And change in people, quite frankly, uh, because of their fear, because of their suspicions, because of this, they employ passive resistance or sometimes open uh, rejection. And of course, this creates social disruption within a group or fellowship. And that's why when Paul is dealing with change, he has to chart the direction of change. Fourthly, the direction of change is in either one of two directions. You are either changing and moving more towards God, or you are changing and moving away from God. All change can be characterized by that. So you're either moving to God or you're moving away from God, but you are changing, madam. You are changing. You mark it down. You're changing. 
And if you're not closer to God than you were last year, it means that you are further away from God than you were last year. But I guarantee you, you never stay as you are. You are changing. I am changing. And I am either moving towards God or moving away from God. This is why Paul is so concerned to say, be transformed in the spirit of your mind that you may improve what is that acceptable will of God. He just doesn't want change for change's sake. Fifthly, because all change is either towards God or away from God, all change is moral. I repeat that. Because all change is either towards God or away from God, all change is moral. You see how important this subject is for us as believers? And sixthly, the only way that you can ever measure and decide the direction of change, whether it is right or wrong, wise or foolish, righteous or evil, is to have an absolute standard by which you can judge the direction of that change. And Paul's answer is, God's will as expressed in God's word. That's the standard for you to decide in what direction you're moving. I made a statement at the beginning, and some of you probably opened your eyes and probably swallowed your bubble ground. I said that there's no greater teaching on the matter of change in any other book anywhere than what Paul gives in these two verses. Now you understand what I'm saying. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us Paul's focus on change and the meaning of the word transformed. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.